Um, so we just finished this whole discussion in chapter 7 about Jesus being uh, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And um, I, my temptation is to do a big, long review about that. But uh, suffice it to say that it answers the question for the Jews that uh, you know they have uh, the high priest in the order of Aaron descended from the tribe of Levi, and uh, their hearts are entangled with the concept that they need to have a priest. And so the author of Hebrews is answering the fact that, yes, you do need a priest, but not in the order of Aaron. You have a, you have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And uh, that answers for us the fact that we don't need an earthly priest, that priesthoods as a whole are done away with by uh, Jesus. Not that they were wrong, but they have become obsolete. And he's going to talk about how the entirety of the covenant, the old covenant, has become obsolete. So as we move into 8 and 9, we get a bigger picture regarding the law as a whole and how not only is there this new priesthood, but there is also the new covenant and no need for them to become entangled with the old covenant. Uh, they, they've been delivered from it. So Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. Well, hey, right? If, if someone's written you a letter and, and they say in the midst of it, this is the main point of everything I'm trying to get across, you'd want to pay particular attention to what follows. So if we focus on uh, this chapter particularly, but this 8 and 9, uh, as far as what the author of Hebrews is trying to relay, certainly the core of it is found right here. So now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. So <clears throat> priesthood generally is not done away with, uh, you know, in regard to we have a high priest. And for the Jews who are being encouraged to depart from temple, worship where they would go to the temple and worship uh, this is supposed to be a comforting encouraging factor to them that look you still have a priest it's not the idea of you know we've thrown out the concept of priest it's a matter of you have a superior priest in Jesus and that is not the shadow that's the actual uh, so many people today that get caught up in legalism where they're in some brand of Christianity that wants to take them back uh, to the law. You know, I know a lot of people are very careful about 
what they say about denominations and doctrine and things of that nature. And I tend to be a bull in a china closet. And I don't, it's not, I don't take joy in it. It's not like, you know, I get a thrill out of it. But I think there's a danger in avoiding it. You know, for instance, Seventh day Adventism. Okay. You know, are they our Christian brothers? If they adhere to the grace of God the way we do, right, then we are brothers. And I would, you know, I would do what James did in that regard. If they're adhering to the grace of God the way that they should for salvation and they're not relying upon their works, then we can be saved just like them. Okay? Not, not, not they can get saved just like us, like we've got something superior. When James in Acts chapter 15 addressed the issue of legalism in reference to the Gentiles, he said to the Jewish brethren that were there, if we continue in the grace of God, we can get saved just like the Gentiles. (laughs) The encouragement of depart from the law, right? Saturday worship is not going to save anyone. Going to church on Saturday, abstaining from pork is not going to save anyone. Not drinking caffeine is going to make you really tired and not save anyone. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it doesn't, these outward things don't provide us with salvation. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And, And that's the concentration that is here. We, we want to stay away from, and we want to admonish people to stay away from these doctrines of legalism that lead us into that mindset of, oh, if I obey a specific set of rules, then I will be acceptable to God, right? Uh, listen, there's a set of rules we ad- should adhere to, but it's because we've been saved, Right? It isn't the source of the salvation. And the scripture is very clear about these things. So here, the true tabernacle is the one that's in heaven. And it's always been that way, right? It isn't that when Jesus came, he established something new. And therefore, now you've moved on. It's a matter of what was made as the earthly tabernacle, what was provided as all the earthly ordinance, and the author of uh, Hebrews is going to talk about, these were all symbolic of what was in heaven. So Jesus, as the high priest has come, he's fulfilled all of the law. He said that upon the cross, you know, it is finished, meaning all things required of the law and all of the prophecy and everything regarding salvation. It is finished. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is there, as this passage says, to always make intercession for us. Our high priest is in the heavenly places. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to author, offer both gifts and sacrifices. Important that we understand that especially in regard to the millennial kingdom and what lies ahead of us. Many of the sacrifices, you know, we refer to as sacrifices, uh, were, were gifts. They were offerings. They were fellowship with God. They weren't intended for the, the covering of, of sin. There are sin offerings, 
that are made, but there are many offerings that are made just to be in fellowship with God, to give something to the Lord, to sacrifice of yourself and and pour something out uh, in your relationship for uh, you know or with the Lord rather. So that that's why you have both gifts and sacrifices listed there. You get into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And the tabernacle is there and offerings are being made. And people often ask, well, why is there a need for sacrifice in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? There isn't for sin, right? Because Jesus Christ is that once and for all sacrifice. But the fellowship offerings are still going to be allowed so that you can be in fellowship with the Lord. We'll talk a little more about that. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. And notice uh, your should, your Bible should have it in verse 3 that when it says this one, the, the O on the one is capitalized because it's referring uh, to Jesus Christ as the high priest. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain." So over and over, Moses says that through the instructions and then the process of the building of the tabernacle. Do it according to the pattern shown to you. Do this according to the pattern shown you. These things were done according to the pattern shown. What was in the heavenly was relate to Moses and Moses was assembling the copies, the shadow of what was in heaven. So these are all similitudes of what was in the presence or is in the presence of the Lord. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is was established on better promises. So we have a better covenant in Jesus, obviously, and it is giving us better promises. So, you know, the promises of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, were prominently focused around Abraham, his family, and the coming into Israel and receiving the promised land. Uh, certainly those promises extended beyond to the same promises that we're receiving. But it's as though Jesus has arrived in the midst of that promised land, Abrahamic fulfillment, and, and is saying that everything of his covenant is beyond those things. So, so theirs had that immediate earthly fulfillment, with the overarching theme of eternity, whereas ours is beyond the earthly fulfillment, only reaching out into the eternal with Jesus Christ, his presence, heaven, the throne, 
his kingdom, the fulfillment of all of these things, even, even the promise of the millennial reign eclipses the Abrahamic covenant, which was you know, a fulfillment of, of the earthly things for them in the past. So here in verse 7, it says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no one would have, uh, then no place would have been sought for a second. So, you know, if somehow Jesus' ministry was supposed to be focused on, you know, his establishing his kingdom, right? Isn't what they were all looking for? You know, they were looking for Jesus to become the king of Israel, to conquer the Romans, to you know, bring all of those things into fulfillment. They didn't realize they were looking into the new covenant, right? That they're in the old covenant. All of those things are fulfilled and being fulfilled in their midst. They're looking to promises that are of Jesus' kingdom, the new covenant, thinking that they belong to their old covenant. Uh, there's a need to move on, right? I mean, you know, if you purchase uh, a vehicle, you know, or how about past tense? If you purchased one 10 years ago and went in and signed with the dealership and the bank and you went through the whole process and you fulfilled that, payments made, done, you know, listed the vehicle on Uncle Henry's and it's gone, right? And now you're going in, to purchase a new vehicle, you're not asking any questions about the old vehicle and the old contract and the old financing. That, that's all been fulfilled. It's all behind you. Yeah, yeah. Talking about the same program here, right? I need a car. But the old one is gone. The, the, old, the old car is gone. The, the, the covenant's gone. The, the payments are done. You know, you, you're not you're not looking at the new contract saying, "Hey, no, there's no mention of my old Chevy in here." Right? You've moved on to the new program, and that's exactly what's being said here. And and he's going to get very particular about this. You know, that you had one, and we've moved on from that. If the old one was the fulfillment of all of these things, right? If if you only ever needed to buy one car, then then you'd never have another contract. The fact that the old one is gone is a sign that that's all been fulfilled. No place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, and don't misunderstand, right? We get great clarity from the scripture. There's nothing flawed in the covenant or in the law other than all that the law did in the past was show us our flaws. It doesn't provide us with salvation. It just shows the whole world that we're a bunch of jerks, that, that we're sinners. It, it verifies that you are headed to hell, uh, condemning. Uh, so, so within that, there's a need for a new one, right? Because we need salvation. We need eternal. We need to go on from here. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming. And, and if you're interested uh, all of this, except for verse 12, mostly comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. 
And uh, there's there's a few more details in that passage that lend understanding and are really fulfilling for you to read on your own. So you might want to make note of Jeremiah uh, 31 there. He is finding fault with him. He says, quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people none of them shall teach uh, and you know none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying know the lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Certainly Jeremiah quotes uh, verse 12, but you know it, it actually the model that he takes there is more from Isaiah and also from uh, Micah. But uh, you know the prophets in general uh, summarize that last statement about God's graciousness and their you know God's forgiveness and uh, His lack of remembering of their sin the complete blotting out and removal. So so he's encapsulating the theme of God's mercy uh, quoted by several prophets in, in verse 12. But the gist of the thing from 8 through 11 in that idea that this, this isn't a new concept, okay? You know, this isn't something, and, and there are those, uh, you know, that, have their effect on Christianity that try to pull Christianity back into legalism and back into these, you know, Old Testament behaviors. And, uh, you know, their their mind frame is this is, you know, this whole grace thing is a new concept. This is not, you know, this is something that the modern church has invented. Well, not at all, right? It, it, it isn't even something... You know, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying right here in verses 8 through 11 is this is not, you know, like a a New Testament Jesus teaching. This isn't something that Paul formulated and forced upon the church. This, This goes all the way back, right? Jeremiah, the last prophet to minister to Judah before they fell, Israel in the north, the separation has occurred, 10 tribes in the north continuous rebellion against God, idolatry all along the way. And God warns them and sends you know, uh, their enemies in to try and discipline and correct them. And finally, they're all taken away captive. And the two tribes in the south, the Lord continues to minister to them and they fail and fall and conduct themselves in idolatry until what, 586 BC, the final fall. Jeremiah is there weeping over the fact that this is it, guys. This is the final stroke. We're all going down. And that message we just read comes right out of that Old Testament prophet's mouth. The grace of God. There's going to be a new covenant. 
So they have to embrace this concept that this message has been coming to them for centuries, that there's going to be a new contract. There's going to be a new agreement with God and man. So when Jesus arrives, proves right that he is God in the flesh through his works, and then gives the symbols of his new covenant, bread and wine, right? The, the symbols Melchizedek brings to Abraham in Genesis 14. This is the new covenant. What? Uh, of what was established by God is, is in heaven. You now see these things being presented to you here on earth. So, so you know, don't allow yourself to get stumbled. I, I often hear Christians talking about Messianic Jews. And uh, it was pointed out uh, years ago that really there's no such thing. Because you're either Jewish religiously or you're Christian. I mean, Messianic Jew, right? Okay, I guess I get the concept of what you're saying. Are you part of the new covenant? Right? You're saying what? By my heritage, I'm Jewish, but I believe Jesus to be my Messiah. So you're a Christian, right? In Christianity, there are no Jews. There are no Greeks, right? There are no nationalities, no other religion. We are all brothers and sisters. There's not even male nor female, according to the scripture. We are all bound together in Christ. So this, this it's an important concept because... You know, you you speak of you know these old behaviors. Oh, we should have them come over and do a seder. There's just so much of you know Jesus found in that. Great, you know, let's study the shadow in detail when the substance is available to us, which is Christ. Th think about how silly that is, right? You want to know all of the nuance of a pine tree. You know, just some simple example. You want to know how the needles are constructed. You want to know how the pine cones work. You want to know how the Cambrian membrane and the conduct of, you know, a glucose up and down and photosynthesis. And you want to know, so you start studying the shadow of the pine tree. You might want to get your hands wrapped around the pine tree. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is the substance. Right, you, you will find all of the details of the shadow by handling the actual subject matter. You know, then when you look over at the shadow, you go, "Oh, I see why that shadow is cast that way because I've studied the substance of the thing in detail." We don't need to get caught up. There's there's not any greater in-depth understanding in the Old Testament. You want to understand the Old Testament for the concept that it reveals to you and I, Jesus. Your concentration upon the Old Testament needs to be that you're viewing Jesus through this lens. Verse 13, and that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. All of the people that want to take us back to the Old Covenant are constantly pointing at the fact that Jesus said he didn't come to abolish 
the old. We didn't. We were not. The, the old hasn't been done away with. Wait, right here it says it's been made obsolete. Jesus made the old obsolete. And look what he says now. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. Well, how much more clear could you be? The law of the Old Testament is not something we need to cling to, look to, hold to today. You want to study it as far as history to understand the New Testament and Jesus better? Great. But our relationship is through the new covenant, not through the old. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand. He's literally talking about the physical layout of this, what was the tent that Moses had you know, laid out the, the plans for. So literally in the first portion, as you enter the tabernacle, there was the lampstand and the table and the showbread, the loaves of bread that were prepared to represent each of the 12 tribes, which is called the sanctuary. So that first portion, that first room within the tabernacle was referred to as the sanctuary. Behind the second veil, so there was that separation barrier at the back of the tent. The part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, we sometimes you know, quote the scripture and say the holy of holies, we're referring to there, which had the golden center and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant, the uh, the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments is what he's referring to. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. Um, the idea of, you know, we can't speak of these things in detail is the idea of it would bog down the subject. You know, so it isn't a matter of a lack of knowledge or, you know, non-applicability. It's a matter of, you know, staying the course on what he's talking about here. So, so to just put this in order so we can move on into verse 6 and following, the explanation is going to come about the priest and going behind the veil. The, the the thing to concentrate on behind the veil is that Ark of the Covenant in, in two ways, okay? Number one, we just had listed the articles of history that are there. So each of these things pertains, you know, very heavily to God's agreement with them as a nation and the things God conducted himself with them as a nation. So he begins with that uh, statement of, uh, you know, actually the golden censer. Because really, when we, we, we talk about the Ark of the Covenant and behind the veil, the censer 
was to symbolize the prayers of the saints which were ascending to heaven. And we get into the book of Revelation and we see very specifically described that the angel is there in the presence of God and the smoke from the censer is mingled with the prayers of the saints. And we, we need to make sure that we remember saints aren't some super class of Christians or believers. A saint is anyone who is relying upon Jesus Christ's shed blood for their salvation. You know, that, that statement we hear people say so frequently, you know, well, you know, I ain't no saint, they'll say. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Yes. Then you are a saint. You know, it, you know, it isn't a matter of, you know, as the Roman Catholic institution has incorrectly assigned, well, you've got to have so many miracles attributed to you. You know, people have to have offered prayers to you. And then there has to be verification of not only the prayers having taken place, but then after the prayers were offered, then the answer had come. And so, you know, if you are capable of performing miracles in your lifetime and then answering prayers after you pass away, then, you know, the church takes a vote and they classify you as a saint. Uh, that's all completely false compared to what is relayed in the scripture. The scripture clearly tells us that, again, anyone who is believing Jesus Christ for salvation is a saint. The prayers of the saints uh, in the book of Revelation, there are people who have been beheaded for their faith who are basically distraught in heaven over the fact that they had prayed prayers before they were put to death. And since they have been in the presence of the Lord, they're offering up prayers and God is seemingly taking his time to answer them. And they say, how long? Are you going to wait uh, until you have answered our prayers? And the Lord gives them, uh, he clothes them with a white robe and tells them he will comfort them and that he will answer their prayers. And then we begin to see their prayers unfold. All of that is symbolized as the smoke from the incense burner ascends mingled with the prayers of these saints. So the censer, right, here, all of Abraham's prayers, all of the nation of Israel's prayers, all who have ever believed in hope of the salvation that was going to come from God through Jesus Christ is symbolized in that golden censer. That's the, the high priest would bring that in, put the incense in it, and the smoke that ascended symbolized the prayers of all who had died in hopeful expectation of the fulfillment of these things. So the censer's very uh, significant. And then the golden pot, or, or then the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, symbolizing the tabernacle itself, cut overlaid with gold, and then the golden pot of manna, God's provision. Uh, all of God's provision is symbolized in manna. You know, the, the, the term itself, manna, means what is it? Because they saw this lying on the ground, and their summary is what in the world is that? And they were able to eat it, and it sustained them. So then reverse the thought process. 
you know, what is it that you need? What is it that you're seeking? You know, you have a longing in your life. You have a need in your life. You have some urgency that you're you're looking to something from the world or some person and you have it. What is it? What is your need? In the end, God is that answer. So this manna symbolizes God's full provision. Whatever your need is, it is found in Jesus Christ, in God. Then you have this uh, rod, which budded, the symbol of God's authority on earth. right? Aaron's authority, certainly in the priesthood, but where does Aaron get his authority, right? Because Aaron's a loser. You know, that, that guy is, you know, he's, he's an idol maker, right? He, he's a false teacher leading the people of God astray and lying about it, right? I didn't make any golden calf. I just, uh, you know, he, it's almost like he's trying to say, I, do, I was trying to destroy what they were doing. I just threw all of their gold earrings into uh, the fire. And I was like, dude, this calf walked out. I don't I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You know, it's like every lie, you know, some little kid has told you along the way. How did the lamp get broken? I have no idea. What were you doing? Nothing. You know? So I left here. The lamp was intact and whole. I come back and, you know, there's basketball marks on sneaker prints all over the walls and, you know, a broken lamp. And you didn't have nothing to do with it. No, not a thing. You know, in fact, I was just trying to clean up and I noticed the broken lamp myself. This is the way we paint ourselves. Aaron, Aaron is that immature, and God makes him the high priest. Why? Because it's God's authority, right? Because he's representing Jesus Christ. Whatever pastor, leader, individual God puts in your life, right? and I'm not making excuses for myself in any way. I try to live up to the standard, but you put them under the microscope, you're going to find their flaws. It's, it's going to be very apparent right away that they're as human as you are. That doesn't take God's authority away. Aaron, Aaron, right, people rose up, tried to overthrow Aaron. That's when this rod budded. You know, you guys all think you're leaders. You think you can take over for Aaron. You think you know better than God. Then all of you guys bring your walking sticks here and lay them down. And, and not only... You know, not only does that thing, you know, bring forth bud and put forth leaf, it goes all the way to fruitfulness. That's that's a, a miracle without question. And it symbolizes God's authority and his consecration of his priests, of his leadership on earth. So God's leadership, God the prayers. And the prayers answered, God's provision symbolized the manna, God's leadership working through men symbolized in Aaron's rod that budded. The tablets of the covenant, God's word. The entirety of the scripture is summarized in the tablets. Everything that extends out, right? And Jesus himself is saying this as he's asked, what are the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus summarizes, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The, the whole of the law and the prophets are summarized in those two statements. So, so the entirety of God's relationship 
is seen here, and then you get that additional symbol of the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So the two things, the angelic hosts as the ministers of God's entire covenant. I've dwelt a little bit in this study in Hebrews on the fact that Jesus Christ was essentially the stairway, the the ladder on which the angels descend to earth and ascend back to heaven in order to minister to the human race. He is the portal by which all of heaven's ministry occurs on earth. So these cherubim here symbolize and represent the great host, the innumerable host of angels that have ministered God's plan to humanity all throughout time. And then the mercy seat symbolizes God's throne, but how interesting that it's named a mercy seat, right? We we would, in our sinfulness, if we had a throne, probably refer to it as the judgment seat, right? Because we would weigh out our sinful edicts from there. Not so with God. His, His position of power, his seat of glory is the mercy seat. You know, preachers have done a better job than I can at talking about how, you know, grace, right? Judgment, justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is not getting what you deserve, right? Or mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting things that you don't deserve poured out upon you as blessing. God's mercy seat, what a remarkable picture. So this encapsulation of things in verse 6, now when these things have been thus prepared, the priest always went in the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, so continuously. And then the second part, the high priest, not all of the priests, but the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And now a couple of things in this regard, right? Need to establish the concept again that sin requires the punishment of death. What do we mean by that? That just seems sort of, you know, almost mystical to describe it that way. It's as simple as this. Sin results in death. You know, what you and I are dying from, uh, you know, some of us more rapidly than others, others more slowly than others, but we're all in the process of perishing. What's taking our lives is sin. Even if you want to go back to uh, the thing that is killing us on earth more than anything else is the sun. Well, uh, in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, they were intended to live eternally on earth. God made provision for them to live on earth. How was that? All the speculations, you know, that the canopy was protecting the earth from the sun and all these different things. No, no, I I can't speak to that with any degree of accuracy. What I can tell you is that there was a tree of life in the garden. And as long as they were able to eat of that, they were going to have eternal life. 
And God blocks them from being able to consume of that thing. So God intended eternal life. They sinned against God and were expelled. And along with them, the entire human race was expelled from access to that tree of eternal life. So sin caused humanity to begin to break down toward death. And ultimately, Adam and Eve, they were told, uh, we've, we've discussed it many times, in dying, you will die. The moment they ate of the tree, they died spiritually. Ultimately, that resulted in their physical death. In dying spiritually, you will die physically, is what we assume that meant. All of us are going to die, and sin is the reason for that death. So blood, right, life, is what you have to pay in order to participate in sin. If you're going to participate in sin, there's a payment to be made. The payment is your life. So they covered the sin. Everything about the old covenant was covering the sin. It didn't remove the sin, right? It didn't do away with the sin. You kill the lamb, you take the blood, you present the lifeblood of the lamb as a substitute for, I have sinned, this animal was sacrificed on my behalf. Here is the blood of that animal as evidence that a life was sacrificed. All of that symbolized Jesus Christ. Once a year, high priest takes the blood of that offering behind the veil and pours it on the mercy seat to symbolically show the Lord, we have obeyed you, we have sacrificed the lamb, and we now bring its blood and we pour it here on the mercy seat to satisfy the payment for the sin. The death has occurred. Jesus Christ, amazingly, brings his own blood in behind that veil and presents it to the Lord as sacrifice for all of our sins. What an amazing picture. What a remarkable thing here. So, he offered for himself and for the people sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make him who performs the service perfect in regard to conscience. It covers the sin, right? The blood of, he's going to talk about this. The blood of bulls, goats, lambs covers the sin, but it doesn't take the sin away. It doesn't make the person perfect. It doesn't make the person faultless. Got to continue to offer the sacrifices. The high priest has to continue to go in every year and pour out the blood of the lamb, right? If you just followed everything perfectly and it was supposed to make everything right with God, then somewhere along the line they would have hit the perfect conduct of those sacrifices and there we finished it. The Old Testament couldn't do it. The, the, the blood of the lambs and the goats couldn't do it. And that's what he talks about here. So, you know, this, this whole thing cannot perform the service 
uh, make them perfect in regard to conscience. Verse 10, concerning only, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinance. Notice this, imposed until the time of reformation. Reformation. You know, we, we use that word, very religious word. We use it in a lot of different settings. Well, the definition is in the compound word, reformation. Right? There has to be a reforming of this whole formula because it's not accomplishing its intended purpose, right? The intended purpose is perfection. Imperfection is what? Is sin is what brings the death. So sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after years after, you know, decades after centuries, millennia has not accomplished the perfecting of the priests or the people that he's representing. So there's clearly a need of the perfect to come. Listen, I know, right, class, Calvary Chapel Downies, you get these things. It's important that you live according to them. That, that you're not walking around every day under that shadow of, I'm not perfect. God probably hates me today. Right? Yesterday I did okay. And I think he liked me. And man, I went to bed and I, I slept well and I was pretty happy. But I woke up grumpy and I've been a jerk and I did bad things and so probably I'm headed straight to hell. And we go to bed with a guilt-ridden conscience as though, what? So, so is it your sacrifice? Is it your conduct? Or, or is it Jesus Christ shed blood? Right? You know, you shouldn't be a jerk. You should seek his forgiveness. As you lay your head down, you should make your confession. You should try to clear the tables with him and make things right. But God still loves you. He's, his relationship with you is unchanged. Right? The, the sacrifices don't have to... The, the whole approach of a lot of Christianity is just, i gotta, I got to beat myself up. I can't feel good about things right now. I'm a terrible human being, so I, I need to walk around with a giant frown and, and just probably give myself a headache, you know? And then, you know, when, I, when, I was com when I'm completely stressed out, then maybe God will accept me because, you know, then I've suffered enough. It's a strange thing that, that we do, and then we do it to others. You know, I, I, I've been watching you, and, uh, you know, you're a pretty big creep, and... Um, you know, I think that you uh, are just a little too smug. You know, like you're acting like you got a perfectly good relationship with God. You probably ought to feel pretty bad about yourself, you know. Because I'm over here working real hard to make sure I feel real good about myself through all my religious conduct. And um, you over there just, you know, I've noticed you're terrible. And uh, you know, that whole example Jesus gives about choking the life out of your fellow servant like they owe you something certainly we do need to walk in fellowship with christ where that relationship purifies our walk but in the end this sacrifice is once and for all this is you know back in the day you could have literally you know 
gotten off track and conducted yourself terrible and got to the end of a couple of weeks, a month, or whatever it is, and thought, you know, I really do need to take a lamb down to the tabernacle and have it sacrificed. Because <laughs> I'm just, I'm terrible. You're terrible all the time. We, we need this grace continuously, perpetually. Let the Lord minister to you. You know, the Reformation was coming of Jesus Christ, the reforming of the new covenant. But Christ came as high priest. I, I, I read this several times today, and um, I just extracted the italicized as, and, and then inserted in my mind that definition of Christ, the, the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Lamb of God. So when we read Christ, right, it contains all of that stuff. But Christ came high priest. And I just dwelt on that whole idea of, yeah, as gives a little English understanding, but it's it's sort of like a pulsary sort of uh, summation of Christ came high priest. He is our high priest. He fulfilled these things. The law was trying to, working at, doing, the people were thinking and sacrificing in the blood, and then Christ came high priest and finished all this stuff for us, completed these works that we might rest in this relationship. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come for the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Listen, the, I don't mean to be grisly, but uh, these high priests were proficient at butchering, so proficient in their process of slit the throat and drain the blood and you know, hang the animal and all the life just poured right out. When they bring the blood in, it is a conclusion that the animal has been slaughtered and all of its life, all of its lifeblood drained out is symbolized in this blood that I bring here before the altar. Jesus Christ's blood was poured out, right? Pierced through the side, Water and blood poured out, indicating that his heart had ruptured and that you know pericardial sac was all now even to the point of separation of platelets and plasma and pierce that and water and blood pours out. When Jesus Christ enters the presence of the Father and pours out his own blood, he is there flesh and bone without blood. Remarkable picture. Remarkable picture. You know, how think about how inferior everything else has to be at that point. When when someone has, you know, come to you and offered animal after animal after animal, and then they bring in the clear presentation of I have offered my own life. That that's amazing. That Jesus Christ laid 
himself down. He offered his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Signed, sealed, delivered, completed, done, no more work. You do not have to strain and exhaust yourself in order to obtain salvation. It, it is, you know, the symbol of, you know, someone has given you their life, right? You were going to die. You had, you had an eternity in hell ahead of you. And Jesus Christ, he's not an organ donor, right? Your liver was failing. He didn't give you his liver, his perfect sinless liver. He didn't give you his perfect sinless heart. He gave you his perfect sinless life. His whole life is yours. This, this is why we work. This is why we strain. This is why we do all that we do. It's not in order to gain that life. It's because we've been given that life. It's a result. It's a response to what has been sacrificed on our behalf. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for purifying of the flesh, you know, the, referring to all of those Old Testament rituals of, you know, sprinkling the blood upon the tabernacle and the priest and the people and the law and, you know, the, the ashes of the heifer uh, sanctifying the tabernacle and making preparation for all these, these sacrifices that are made. If, if all of those things did that, for the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Jesus Christ gave his life. I, I you know, I don't, I, I really should get permission from my son-in-law's father, my son-in-law, James, uh, his father, Archie. James's 16-year-old sister was struck and killed by a, a, strung, a drunk driver years ago, and um, they donated her organs, and she saved a few different people's lives with the sacrifice of her own. And I share that in regard to this because, you know, what a shame it would be to lose a child and, you know, their livers donated to somebody and then you run into them and they're just destroying that liver, drunk with alcohol, abusing the thing that provided them with life. Quite a, quite a, a picture of Christ. Right, because it's not an organ; it's an entire life. Your whole life was lost. Christ gave you His whole life. The response should be with our whole lives, not just you know, well, I, I won't do this, or I won't do that, or I will do this. The entirety of our existence is possible because of Christ's sacrifice. The whole of our lives redeemed by him, redeemed from the dead works to serving the living God. 
Serving the living God with our whole person. This is what we have been granted. This is what we have been given is the opportunity to serve. This is what Paul means when he says, for me to live is Christ. Right? It, it isn't, you know, for me to live is, you know, this one isolated area of thing that I do. The rest of the time I have my own selfish pursuits. My life is that which Christ would have me to do. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He's the mediator of the new covenant. We don't need to go back and find the lawyer who drafted the old covenant and say, okay, you got to explain it to me. I need to, you don't need the mediator of the old covenant. You need the mediator of the new covenant, right? If you are enamored with and following after these old Testament things, as soon as you discover there's a new Testament, right? I've been through inheritance and estate process. And that's one of the big questions is, is this, and he's going to talk about it, is this, the most recent will and testament. Right? There, there was one drafted before. It doesn't matter. Is this the most recent one? Has one been drafted after this? You know, do we know all of the lawyers that this person's ever been in contact with? Because whatever the last one that was drafted, that's the one we want to be concerned with, which is what's being said here. You know, to the Jews and to us here in the New Testament Christian church today. What is the newest testament? Jesus Christ. His shed blood, bread and wine, symbolizing that new covenant. That's what we need to be concerned about. For there, for where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity, uh, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For the testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So this is literally what we refer to as the last will and testament. It is only enforced upon someone's death, right? If you find out what's in someone's will and you're written into that will, you don't get to go claim your property, right? As long as they're alive. Once they pass away, then... Right? The, the, the insurance policies all say that. The, the, uh, the estates all say that. Payable upon death. You know, Jesus Christ had to die. Had to die. This is, this is very significant for these Jews reading this. Right? Oh, he was the Messiah. If he was the Messiah, how in the world could he die? He had to die in order to enact this testament. This last will and testament only comes into effect if he dies, let's read through it. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood both with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
Boy, we know that from Romans, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copied of the true, right? The, the tabernacle on earth was a copy of the throne room on heaven, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that we should offer, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered the most holy place every year with blood of another, right? Not of themselves. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that is as it is appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ has offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So the summation of the testament, the death of, of the testator, the one who had written that contract, the fulfillment of the contract under blood, Jesus Christ's own blood, and in that, the promise of his eminent return. This statement at the end, right, uh, to those who eagerly wait for him will appear a second time apart from sin. So the focus of Jesus' first coming was to deal with the sin problem through his atoning sacrifice. So when he comes again, it's not going to be pertaining to sin. It's going to be pertaining to the payment in fulfillment of all of this testament that has been given. So we'll look more in detail at that uh, in the coming weeks. But the summary of the Old Testament versus the New Testament and the necessity to find ourselves in the fulfillment of the New Testament, not burdened by or bound under the Old Testament. Make sense? Yes? No? Good. All right. Well, let's stand and we'll pray and we'll pick up with Hebrews chapter 10 next week. Casey, I don't know if you want to put that out to a wide shot, if that works. Father, bless us as we take these things and cling to them. Help us to be men and women who rest under the gracious assurance of salvation who are simultaneously fueled to work in service in response of that salvation. Lord, teach us that balance. Teach us to rest in you, to just experience you as our Sabbath, our fulfillment, our joy, and our peace. Bless us and keep us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stay in fellowship as long.